Good evening, everybody. Good to see you all. I love to see your smiling faces. Uh, it's so good to be alive, isn't it? Yeah. Jesus is on the throne. We're singing praise and worship, celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We get to open the Word of God and just get wrecked by the Holy Word. Man, it doesn't get any better. It, it, other than being with Jesus right now in heaven, that's it. Like, this is... It is awesome. Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. We're going to be diving in uh, this evening, this passage. It's a good word from the Lord, as they all are. And it has to do with the idea of the human condition where... Uh, we saw it when it happened to Ahab and, you know, Elijah, it happened to him as well, more, more specifically, when he's going by that mountain cleft and he's expecting, you know, the thunder and the lightning and to hear, you know, God, you've got to be in this magnificent power as the way you were in Mount Carmel and did this just incredible, you know, miraculous. And he says, but I'm in the still small voice too. And Naaman's this man, he's going to have leprosy. We're going to read. He's a noble man. He's a Syrian. He's a governor, right? A general, I could say, better put, uh, under the king of Syria. And he's, you know, looking and expecting and hoping and praying once he hears, because God's going to move through a, a young a woman that's going to be captured as part of one of the Syrians, uh, one of the... Um, you know, military or battles that went out with Syria where they went out and they were attacking the surrounding areas, including Israel. And they're going to take this woman captive and she's going to end up working for the masters, uh, this, this man Naaman's wife. And, you know, God's going to orchestrate this whole thing to get this man's heart, to let him know that he's loved. And, and he's going to, you know, well, I know someone that can heal you. Who isn't paying attention? If somebody, you know, if you're struggling with an ailment or a sickness or you've been, you know, just absolutely worn down and, you know, whether it's mental, physical, spiritual, whatever, and somebody comes up to you and says, I know somebody. You're like, I'm going now. Just tell me how to get there, right? And so Naaman's got this idea and he thinks that when he gets there that all of a sudden, you know, the Lord's going to take out, I don't know if he thinks he's going to bring out a wand or, you know, the guy's going to stand over him and go, you know, booga, booga, booga. I, I don't know what he had in his mind, but, but he thought something was going to have to happen like that to turn around and, and get healed. And yet God is going to say something uh, through this prophet, Elisha, that just blows my mind because it's so simple. And he says, what you need is you don't need your health. You need to be cleansed. You need to be washed. You know, my Bible tells me somebody else who said that. My Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as a beautiful picture, a typology, a beautiful picture of the salvation of Christ that he does in the heart of a man and a woman. Well, Naaman's going to expect this, you know, what's going to happen? He's going to be looking, it's got to be this grand, you know, whole go in the water seven times. This water in Israel, like the water I have back in Syria, isn't better water? Go seven times in the water. 
he is going to get so frustrated because I traveled all this way. I came all this way. I've, I've gone through, I'm in another, I, to this man that can heal me. And the man doesn't even come out and see me. And all he says is go down and take a dip in the water and you'll be cleansed. You know what it is? It's too good to be true. It seems so simple that it's too good to be true, friends, doesn't it? And isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ said? And people today reject Jesus and they replace it. If you told them they had to march a thousand miles up a hill, both directions, they'd sign up and say, okay. But you tell them you have a Lord and Savior who died for you so that you could be forgiven. And it just wrecks them. It's too simple. It can't be just one way. It can't just be a narrow way. Well, that's the message tonight. In our lives, we often look and want to mount and create these things around us because God has often given us the simple answer. But we're always looking for the more difficult route. Father, I pray here tonight, Lord, as a people that has been set free by your blood, that we would lay down our yoke and pick your yoke up. The yoke that you've crafted, crafted for us. That our burdens, Lord, your burdens light, the rest and peace that we've longed for our whole lives, Lord, we would receive here tonight. Lord, we... We need a good word of encouragement. And so does the whole world. And you've given us your beloved gospel to just remind us how loved we are and how safe we are in your arms. Lord, be glorified, be magnified, and anoint your word tonight that we would be a people set free with hearts set free mindset free, cleansed and healed by you, our Lord and Savior. We pray, Jesus, we believe. No matter how simple it seems, we believe. And we declare this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. Amen. Amen, everyone. Amen. Chapter 5 of Second Kings, we're going to be looking at verse... One, a beautiful, again, picture of salvation here. Just think of that in the back of your mind as we go through this. Now, Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria, general, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. If we knew nothing else so far about this man, he's accomplished He's a commander. He's been put in charge of other men. He's honorable. He's obviously brave. He's in this army, this military. He has a, a legacy that you and I can read about here. We're also going to read he has a disease. We call that Hansen's disease today. But our Bible calls it leprosy. 
And with all the modern medicine we have today, there's still over 5 million people or more in the United States. There's 5,000, but worldwide, 5 million or more people that are still dealing with leprosy today. Hansen's disease. Most people think it's, it's gone, but it's in 96 countries. I just looked up this data today to see what the recent statistics were. And in scripture, leprosy always points or is endemic of sin. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, as we've been reading, if someone was leprous and they were a Jew, they were to go outside, right? They were not allowed to be in the area of the camp. They were to go outside the camp until they had gone to the priest and the priest said, because they didn't have a cure for leprosy. There was no way to cure the disease. There was really no way to heal that disease. Today, we have some more medicine. It's a prescription of like three different antibiotics at once. And it's a six-month, a 12-month regimen on average. And even then, many times, it will reoccur and come back. So people today still say we don't truly have what we would say a cure. You may put it into remission or you may you know, keep the bacteria from continuing to uh, evolve, if I can say it that way. And yet this man is serving in a public position in the Syrian army. And it's striking because he was, as it says here, a mighty man of valor, but a leper. God bless you. It says, but, we read here, it says, but a leper. Do you realize that every two minutes on this planet Earth, somebody is diagnosed with leprosy? Every two minutes. And the Syrians had gone out on raids, and he had brought back captive a young girl. So apparently the Syrians were raiding the surrounding countries like that, and they even happened to raid Israel. And they bring back this captive girl from Israel. Now, when I, just another word on leprosy, when I was thinking about it here, and I, as we read in scripture, we know that, and I was kind of saying this earlier, there, there, there is no real cure, if you can say, you might re, put it in remit. It kind of reminded me of like the sacrifices that we read about in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. There were sacrifices that you could make, and what were they to do? They were to be a covering. Kind of like, you know, you cover it but did they ever really remove it? It's kind of like putting it in a remission, but you never actually removed the sin from the account. It was just covered. That's what we read in scripture. And it, it just points to the fact that only God, only Jesus Christ through the work on the cross can truly remove sin. Leprosy being a type for sin. Only Jesus Christ restores. No, no man can cure this disease, but God. Just like no man can cure the spiritual condition of the soul, but God. 
So he's lived this life. I mean, just think about what that's been like. I mean, the king obviously allowed him to continue to serve as a commander in the army there, in this military. Most other places and countries would have said, you're diseased, you're out. He, they, they let him serve because of his character, because of his leg legacy. He's a mighty man of valor. But he's got this leprosy. I, I bet you if you went up to him and said, look, Naaman, you could have anything. All the money, all the what, what. He'd turn it all in just to be healed. Just like any one of us, right? If there was a disease or something, we'd turn it all. We don't care about the money or the, we just want healing, don't we? And that's what Jesus Christ did for you and I. We surrendered and he restored. So we, they find this young girl. They take her back. She's brought captive from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only, is the, the girl that was taken captive, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, Samaria is being, being the capital of Israel, for he, who's he, Elisha, would heal him of his prophecy. Leprosy, I meant to say. Excuse me. I, I just want you to let the video run for a minute. God uses this whole thing. I mean, can you imagine this girl? Maybe she was praying in her prayer closet, Jehovah, Yahweh, Lord, God, use me. Use me. And God said, yes, my daughter, I will. And then these, the Syrian army comes into the town and they, they grab her and the parents and everybody yelling and screaming and bloodshed and everything that had been carried on. And this young girl's taken captive, brought to a, another area, another country, a surrounding country, Syria, brought into a stranger's home and told to be a servant to this man's wife, Naaman's wife. Clearly, she could have said, well, I know somebody that can help you, but I'm not telling you, you just took me from my parents. You just took me from my family. You just, you just changed everything for me. And you want me to help you? She didn't say that, did she? That's right. She turned around and she wanted to be used by the Lord. Even in the most dire circumstances and situations, this girl finds herself in. And yet we see that God uses this and allows this to bring this young girl to Naaman's house. Why? To draw Naaman to God. If you ever ask God, is it worth it for one soul? The answers, I leave the 99 and I go after the one. It's always worth it. Friends, I, I'm going to look at you all in the eyes here tonight because this is where it gets real. This, is, this has to be where it gets real here tonight. We've spent time together, seven years. We've been going over scripture together, making our way through the whole word of God together. But there comes a point when you and I need to respond and make a decision in our hearts. Are we willing? 
are you willing to be this girl or boy in here this evening? Ripped from your parents, ripped from your home, ripped from your comfort, ripped from you fill in the blank. To be taken captive, out of control, out of your will, totally against your desire, against your dreams, your wishes, all of it. Fill in the blank. Be put into a difficult situation with constant conflict. And yet, recognize that your purpose is the Lord and your service to the Lord first. You see, that's what it is to truly be a born-again believer in Christ. It's one who has surrendered their will and has become a bondservant. They no longer live for themselves, their spouse, or anyone else around them. Pastor, that's heavy. That's not comfortable. That seems extreme. Yeah, so was it when Jesus went to the cross. God uses this. And God will use every single vessel that, are, that is willing to surrender their will and be taken by God and used wherever you're needed. But God is a gentleman and he never forces himself upon anyone. In this situation, I'm sure this girl in her heart, and we'll meet her in heaven one day. I'm sure she's, she would say this was not ideal. But what a privilege to lead this man, Naaman, and to watch this whole thing happen, to know that I got to be used by God so that another man's soul could be saved. That's why the stakes are high. So she shares this and says, he would heal him of the leprosy. And you don't think Naaman's going to go, what, what, say that again? I heard you. What? Verse 4, and Naaman went in and told his master, saying, thus and thus said the girl who was from the land of Israel. What he's saying is he went into the king. The king is his master, Naaman. And he's going to have this conversation with the king. And he's going to say, king, because after all, he's, he's a general. He's like third or fourth in command. He's right up there at the top. He says, I just found someone that told me that there's this man in this other land, and he can heal me of this leprosy that nobody else can heal me of, that nobody else can cleanse me of. And verse 5, the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. I'll even give you papers. So he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. Look, one change of clothing was a big deal. This is a, a, an incredible amount of money and wealth. He's bringing them. You know why he's bringing them? For a payment of service. 
Because when their service is rendered, most people expect what? A payment for the services rendered. That also is going to be a lesson here this evening in, in the word of God. A man of God doesn't touch something like that if it's a distraction. We're going to see Elisha talk about that here in a minute. But this great wealth. And then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. Can you imagine the king? He's getting this letter. Wait a minute. I'm going to do what? I can't heal this guy. Right? I can't heal this guy. We're talking about, you know, Joram right there. This guy can't even get out of his own way, let alone I'm going to heal this man. He clearly, he says, this is a setup. This guy's he's sending me this letter. He knows I can't heal him. He can't heal the. So what's going to happen? Well, you can't do that. We're going to war. So that's where Joram, he's worried about his own neck. He's not even for one moment compassionate to this other man that's coming to him with such need. This disease of leprosy, Hansen's, he's not even, he's just like, what's, why are you bothering me? Do we respond that way? When somebody comes to us with need or op, how, how do we respond in a ministry opportunity? Somebody comes to us and says, here's an opportunity to bless other people, to serve other people. Are we the first to balk? That's a lot of work. Boy, what do Boy, we look like Joe Rams. And it happened when the king of Israel read this letter that he tore his clothes, almost like he's mourning. Not for the man, for himself. Am I God? Even he recognizes that. To kill and to make alive? That this man sends a man to, for me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. He says, something's up. He says, nobody can heal leprosy. Everybody knew that in those days. There was no way to heal leprosy. No man could do that. What, what this man was asking, what this king was asking, the king of Syria asking to the king of Israel, nobody can do that. Why would you ever send me such a letter making such a request? You know what he should have done? He knows Elisha, doesn't he? Because Jehoshaphat and the whole thing, is there a prophet in the land? Remember we read that chapter ago? He should have said, I know a guy. I know a guy. And sent him to Elisha. But he's not interested in helping. He's interested in preserving his own neck. The king of Israel. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. You know what that's like saying? King, you can't. But I know a God that can. Maybe your doctor is telling you no. But I know the great physician. And he may be telling you yes. Why is Elisha doing this? Why is Elisha sticking his neck out for some guy that he doesn't know that actually came in, and if we're being accurate here, 
this man, this commander, this general, just wasn't too long ago, came in and caused war and havoc and took one of the girls captive from his very nation. We almost have a Jonah situation on our hands. You want me to go to Nineveh and help those people? Not realizing that the Assyrians one day, and by the way, because of that grace of the Lord, they did repent Nineveh, right? Which is Assyria. And because of that, there were two to three hundred years before Syria eventually does come and invade Israel and bring because of the judgment. What if Jonah didn't go? What if they didn't repent? That judgment might have been brought imminently upon Jonah's generation. You see, we don't know what God's always doing. We can't presume upon God. This prophet isn't doing that. You know what he's doing, Elisha? He says, I'll do it. And you know why I'm going to do it? So he knows the real, true God. That's the purpose for the healing here. That this man will come and know the one true God. Then Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. So can you imagine this, the whole pomp and circumstance going on with this? You know, Elisha, a simple man here. You know, he, he's basically in this, probably this very simple house or hut or whatever you want to call it. And here comes this commander, this general, with all the horses and the chariots and the entourage, and he's coming right up to the front door of this very, very humble home, Elisha's house. And so Elisha, knowing that there's this very important man at the door, says, I got to get ready. I got to do my hair. I got to find my best clothes. I got to look the part, be the part, fake it till I make it, right? I mean, I got to be into this. No, you know what Elisha need to be doing? He need to be on his knees praying. And you know what he turned around and did? He says, Gehazi, go out and meet him. Elisha's not impressed. He's not impressed with all the pomp and circumstance, all the things that most people in the world, oh my, look at the wealth, look at all the, wow, look at the, you're all, you do what? What's your job? You, you, you know who? You're connected to this, that, and the other? All these things that the world puts value on. Elisha doesn't put any value on any of that. I bet if it was one of the son of the prophets from the school of the prophets that had come to Elisha's house, he had been right out there. But for this man, I want to help him, but I'm needed in prayer right now. What's Naaman thinking? Here I am, I get to the house. Where's the master of the house? Where's this prophet? I came all this way, I traveled. You don't know that I'm the commander of the Syrian army? I could wipe out Israel right now. I have it in my power to go back to the king and I can destroy your nation. I just took it, a girl captive. I just did. A, I have the power within my ability. That's what he's thinking, Naaman. I can do this. I'm third and fourth in command. I'm a general of the army. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Now the Jordan from where Elisha's house would be somewhere, be about 15 miles. 
about 15 miles. Not a terribly long journey. And your flesh shall be restored to you, you, and you shall be what? Healed? No, what's your Bible say? You shall be clean. That's exactly what the blood of Christ does for you and I. It cleanses us. We may be healed on top of it, but it cleanses us. What this man needed was cleansing. He didn't need healing. He needed cleansing. But Naaman became furious. Why did Naaman become furious? I traveled all this way. That's the best you got. You don't even come to me yourself. You send your servant out and you want me to go to the Jordan 15 miles back and you want me to walk in and out of the water seven times. Is this some kind of joke? Is this some kind of joke? Do you know who I am? And he went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, and, you know, this is kind of like, you see the comic book captions where you get the little arrow and there's the little bubble above the arrow. And you can see what we're kind of getting inside, you know, Naaman's head here. He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hands over the place and heal the leprosy. That's the way Naaman's got it all planned out. He's going to come out. He's going to have the whole pomp and circumstance. He's going to have the mantle, the robe. He's anointed. He's going to stand up there. He's a prophet. You know, a pastor just stands up there. And he's just going to go, you know, you know, all the stuff you're supposed to say. And then, you know, boom, it's going to happen. That's what he thinks. Who's the one doing the work in this? Who is he looking to and trusting in to do the bam? He's looking at Elisha. He wants Elisha to come out. I felt, you know, am I like Emeril Lagasse for a minute there? Bam, I don't know. But he comes, I don't know where I got, but he comes out and he, boom, you know, okay. He just wants to drop it down. Like that's how it's going to go down. No. Elisha's going to have nothing to do with that. Because then the man's going to walk away as a man of authority. He's going to walk away and attribute that to another man of what? Authority. You see, the whole point is, he sends a simple messenger because it's not about Elisha. It's about God. And he doesn't want Naaman to miss it. And while Naaman's turning around and saying, this guy's no help, I need action. God's working in this. Shouldn't he just wave his hand or wand, chant something? Water's not going to help anyone. He's thinking, I've been in the water. The point is, it's not the prophet. It's not the water. It's the God. How many times do you and I need to read something like this to be reminded of that in our lives? It's not the things around us. It's not the environment. It's not the circumstance. It's not the correlation of different activities and events or things that go on. It's not our finances or our bank account that keeps us safe or protects us. It's not our doctors and our physicians that keep us well, while they're well-meaning and they do good jobs like that. Thank you, Lord, for medical men and women. 
It's God. It was so easy in these days to understand that message because if God withheld rain, there was a famine. You died. There wasn't the piggly wiggly down the street where you ran and got and filled up your you know, freezer chest and said, well, I'm good for a year no matter what happens because I got it figured out. Because even if you planted in the garden, if God didn't bring the rain, you weren't going to eat. Today, we've slowly but surely continued to remove ourselves from that. One step back at a time. We used to know where our food came from and how we worked hard to make it. And we could see the presence of God and the bountiful blessing he gave us of the harvest. We took a step back because that's hard and messy work getting in the dirt dirty. Then we turned around and, you know, I'm middle management. I got to watch. They stopped that in the 60s and 70s, I think. And it was the pensions. We'll take care of you for life. About 2,000, most of those stopped. Who's your fortress? Who's your shield? Who's your buckler? Who got you here tonight? Who wakes you up tomorrow? We have such an illusion to think that we actually have something to do with any of it. That the stars, the sun, the moon, all of it. Do you realize that the sun moves or changes just slightly in direction? Or do you realize that if the earth comes out of the, the orbit that it's traveling, that's just slightly, or if the rotation changes just slightly, that we would have hypothermia breaking out all over this place because it would be an Iceland freezing. God keeps all of it down to the intricacies. And when's the last time you thought about, I hope I wake up tomorrow and breathe. You know, I got to remind my lungs, work, breathe. No. Unless you had a cold or something like that, you know, sniffles. How many things operate? Your heart beating at the rhythm. Unless you have AFib. All of these things, just, they're endless. They're endless, the examples. But God has been protecting and caring for you and I since the day we were in our mother's womb, even when we couldn't tell our mothers what to eat or not eat. It's time we just acknowledge God. Instead of our, all the other things that we put in place to think that that's our support net or our hope in time of need. I really believe if we would do that and repent, God may hit the pause button again. And there may be a time of revival. But I fear we've gone too far. Humans. The human condition. But I'm not God. We pray for his grace. We pray for his mercy. We pray for salvation. 
and demons furious. Are not Abana, verse 12, and Farpar, the rivers in Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? I came here because I got to go in your water? My water isn't good enough? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Naaman's not getting it, is he? He's not getting it. How many people don't get that you need Jesus Christ to be cleansed and washed from your sin? You can't do it, and neither could I. So he turned and went away in rage, beside himself. All his aspirations, all his dreams, all his hope that he just had, all lost now. He says, it's too good to be true. Can't beat this. And his servants came near and spoke to him. Isn't that interesting? Once again, God using not even a name servant. We don't know the name of that young woman, do we? We'll get to meet her in heaven, but we don't know her name. We don't know the name of this servant, is it? Because it's not consequential to the account, is it? It's the fact that God rose up someone to come up and speak sense to Naaman right now. To speak a word to him. And said, my father. Well, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have done it? He, the servant gets it. He calls it right out. He says, if he just told you that you had to do a thousand push-ups and, you know, jump on your head, you'd say, I believe that. That's what's going to save me. That's what's going to heal me. That's what's going to cleanse me. Isn't that true, though? I mean, let's be, you know, honest tonight. If, if, if you, if someone said, you know, you can do all these things. I mean, that's what all the world religions are based on, aren't they? Ideologies are based on. The humanist movement's all based on it. I'm a good person. I can be good because I do these things. You'd have done it. You'd have more faith in that than the simple message of the gospel. Whoa. How much more then, when he says, do you wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the sayings of the man of God. Can you imagine as he goes down, he gets in there once, one time, this is stupid, walks back two times, what an idiot I am. Three times, boy, it's cold. He comes back for, is this my, that's my little caption. Fourth time, he comes back in. He's like, well, you know, all right. Fifth time, these guys are looking at me. What? They're thinking, what a clown. Sixth time, all right. All right, now, seven times. All right, all right, and he's probably looking at the servant. Are you happy now? I'm about to do this. And I goes down to seventh time, he comes up, and all of a sudden, he's cleansed. What words, what would you say in that moment? Everything just, poof. We see this sometimes today when the Lord, um, somebody gets a cancer diagnosis or they get a diagnosis of some kind, a, a liver or a, a heart or, or, or an organ failure or something, and, and you need a, 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 
you need a new one or, you, you know, it's not going to take or these things. And they get these dire, you know. And God steps in and heals, restores. Everything changes. And sometimes it's hard to come to grips with that because moments earlier, you were going to die. And there's nothing in no one, no, how, no matter how talented that physician is, no matter how many letters after his name or credentials he has, is going to save you. But God's not done with you yet. How do you reconcile that? I'm still here because God said so. See, if we all woke up every morning that way, we would be right focused. If we woke up every morning when our feet touched the ground and said, okay, Lord, if I'm here today, yes, it's certainly because I want to love my wife. I want to love my children. Yes, you want to love your husband, ladies. Absolutely. Singles, you want to love your friends, your, your widow. Fill in the blank. But God, I'm here because you have something for me to do. And while you want me to do all these other things like tent making, right? Wherever you work, whatever you do, in and out. You put in 40, 60, 70, somebody you put in 80 hours a week. You're hard workers. You're diligent. You're faithful in your job. Just as we read this Sunday in Luke. You know, faith, you're faithful in what you're doing. But that isn't all. That's not all. There's more. There's a, you know, well, I'm retired. Well, guess what? You're not. You think you're retired. You might have been retired from where you were tent making, but God is still not done with you. He has got you here because you are to do something. What that is, you need to seek the Lord. But if you are here, it's not an accident or coincidence. Because I assure you, if God wasn't holding those things in place for you to be here, you would be dead. You would no longer be here. It's not just random. And when you start to think about that, it starts to take on power in your life. It starts to center you. It starts to focus you. It starts to make you think and answer critical questions like, what's most important to me? Difficult questions. Choosing between time, which is limited and finite, and how you spend it, and how you redeem it. Your monies, what do you do with those things? Do you store them away? Or do you turn around and invest them in the kingdom of God? You know, all of those things. Do you, you pick up a phone? And reach out to a family member that maybe you had a fight with 10 years ago and haven't heard from them. And you say, this is stupid. What are we doing? I love you. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. You know those babies look good like that? With those clean skin, they smell good. And you just, ooh, love those little cheeks. And he was clean. It seems so simple. It's too good to be true. There's no cure for leprosy. And there's no cure for sin. 
There's no cure in the world for sin. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Think about this. This, you know, Gentiles, right? Humanity, the humanist movement. The, you know, we've come so far. We've we've created our technological advancements. Some call it an evolution. What does the scripture say it all is? It's all foolishness. The scriptures actually call it foolish. Works. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, so he went 15 miles back, and he came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is a God in all the earth. There is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take this gift from your servant. What he's saying at this point, and God is saying, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished for that girl that was taken captive. Mission accomplished for the servant. Mission accomplished for Elisha. Mission accomplished for the king. Mission accomplished for everybody's hand, whether you were directly involved or not involved in this. Whether you responded correctly or didn't, as the king didn't. Right? Jeram didn't. Elisha did. It was inconsequential to God as far as, not that it was inconsequential to God, but it was inconsequential to God's plan because it was going to be, this man was going to receive the gospel. He was going to see that he couldn't help himself and nobody could do that at this time. And nobody can today either. I encourage you, stand in front of a mirror and look in that mirror and look at yourself in the eyes and recognize the fact that you can't save yourself. If you could, why didn't you, re you know, do something with the last 50, 60, 70, 40 years of your life, 20 years of your life? If you could really change the course and you had that kind of power, then what are you waiting for? You couldn't. Only Jesus Christ can forgive your sin, remove you from enmity with God, and bring you into right relationship and restore. You can't do it. I can't do it. Why is that so difficult that even Paul wrote about it, didn't he, in the New Testament? He said, the Greeks... He says, you know, the Gentiles and the Greeks, they, all their wisdom, they argue about these things. They intellectualize these things. And God is laughing. Because even in the midst of all their wisdom, it's finite and he's infinite. And the only true wisdom that we have comes from God anyway. It's not ours. He gets it. He's saying, okay. At this point, he's saved. If we were using the illustration of, uh, of a servant, he's saved. He's, I'm going to serve your God. There is no other God. And what's he want to do? He wants to now somehow repay. Because, you know, after all, he's still, you know, he's a man of the world. 
It's not like we, we get saved in an instant, but sanctification is a lifetime. He didn't turn around and go, you know what? Now I understand. I'm not supposed to offer you the money because that would be, you know, taking the glory away from God in this particular situation, right? He, no. Just like when somebody gets saved, you know, some people, you know, they may walk out of this office or this church and they get saved and, you know, the family members, oh, this is going to be great. And I'm just like, easy. It's taken you a lifetime. It's going to take them a lifetime. Wow, they're going to finally get off the alcohol. They're going to quit smoking. They're going to do all these things, right? It's going to take time. God doesn't just rip off the band-aid like that. We'd, ah, you know, run away. No, he's gentle. He takes a little bit at a time. And, and you know what he does? He allows us to realize our need and ask him to remove it. Isn't that cool? He shows us what we need and where we're lacking. And he, he conditions us to pray and to go directly to him to ask for help in that situation and to continue that process of sanctification. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. That's what Elisha says. Elisha's like, no, 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 I am not muddy in this water. Even the Jordan's muddy enough. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. He says, I'm not going to take anything from your world. This is a pure gift from God, and it can't be bought. That's your first lesson, Naaman. While I appreciate your heart and what you're trying to do, you can't buy it. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. Simon had to learn that lesson, didn't he? Acts chapter 8, verse 18. He saw the power of God in the, on the apostles and on the disciples. They were touching, laying hands on men. They were healing. Simon says, I want some of that. What's the going rate? And he looks at him. He says, you can't buy the Holy Spirit. You can't buy him. You ain't got enough money to buy him. That brings me to another point. What could Naaman ever truly give Elisha? that God couldn't give him. Nothing. Look, I know there's times at churches, you know, we do a building project, right? We're, we're, in the pro we're in the process of one of those. I stand up here and I say, pray with us. As the Lord leads, give to the project so we can build the building. Praise the Lord. It's a work of the community. We all do it. Everybody gives. We all do it, right? We understand. But not for one second do I think in any way that my God can't turn around and put a million-dollar check if that's what we would need in that box. Not one second do I not think that my God is going broke and bankrupt and somehow I need to put a Ponzi scheme or I need to fleece sheep or I need to turn around and, you know, put a real polish on to somehow lure people into giving as though my God doesn't have a cattle on a thousand hills. My God has no problems with finances. He never runs out. He doesn't run out. He really never does. Elisha doesn't need whatever he needs, God's going to provide him. There's a contentment in that for Elisha. Oh, we don't need help sometimes. I understand that. But don't ever doubt that God can't deliver you or help you. 
You know, I can remember when my pastor was starting out, and they came from California, Costa Mesa, under Chuck Smith, and he came here. And they rode because one of the doctors that was a friend, they brought him a station wagon over because the car he had never would have made it from California to Rochester. <laughs> he drove up with the keys. He says, the Lord told me to bring you the station wagon. Had just a little rough spot in the bank. You know, my pastor, Pastor Scott, Pastor Bill was his dad at the time. He was the pastor. He says he was driving all the way from California. Every time it would rain, right in his eye, you know, it would come right up through the wheel well, old school, not like today with all the things we have. The water hit him, right? He gets all the way here. He says, I can remember. This is Pastor Scott talking. He says, I can remember so many times as a church, as a people, we knew God was doing this before they bought the skating rink. Right? It was, big. It was big. You know, this was a big step of faith. They started small. You know, the Lord was adding. And now this was a big step. I mean, you know, those millions of dollars. I mean, it was a big step. And this is in the 70s, you know, 80s like that. And he said, even when it came down, he says, I didn't want to take as much as we need from the church. I was trying to be sensitive that way. He says, a lot of times, I would just get on my knees. I watched my dad and my mom. His mom's name was Rosemary. She would get on their knees, and they would hold hands in a circle, Pastor Scott and Pastor Jeff, the two boys. And, and they would just hold hands, and they'd begin to pray and say, Lord, you know what we need. You know what bills are coming in, not because of extravagance, but just because we need to eat, and we need to pay the rent. And, we, and Lord, you know what we're doing. And he said there's not one time that he didn't have pray that prayer. Didn't ever said a word to anybody, and never, nobody knew. The Holy Spirit knew. He says he'd go out sometimes to that mailbox. Not like again today where we have all the digital online give They didn't have any of that. He'd go out to that mailbox. And there'd be like a $500 check in there or something. And somebody would say, hey, Lord, just put it on my heart that you might have a need this week. That didn't happen all the time. That wasn't an all-the-time thing. But he says, you know, that used to be so encouraging to me. To know that God was so intimately involved in all of my dealings and what was going on in my house, in the home, in the church, and everything. He says he knew what we needed. We didn't have to have a campaign. We didn't have to have a whole big... We just needed to go to our good father who gives good gifts to his children. Gifts when they need, not always want. Elisha's not going to touch this. So Naaman said, then, if not, please let your servant. Now he says, okay, he gets it. He knows he's not going to, um, he's not going to get it. He's not going to try to convince Elisha. Verse 17. So Naaman said, then, if not, this is kind of funny the way he says this. Please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. Remember I said he's in the sanctification process? Let me help you. In those days, what they did is they would take the dirt from the ground and they would bring, if they saw that your God was power, or because then again, they believed in demigods. If your God was more powerful, they'd go and they dig and they would take a big pile of the dirt and they would bring that back to where they lived and they would put that in their shrine, so to speak. And then they would, because they felt like then your God would be more willing to visit them if it was on his own dirt. 
All right. So that's that's kind of what's going on here. That was the pagan tradition of that time. If, just to give you a little background and context. So Naaman hasn't arrived yet. Right. Naaman's in the process of saying he just got saved. He doesn't know about anything else. So he says, hey, he's got a right heart. Wrong thing to do, but he's got the right heart, doesn't he? He's give me some of that dirt. He's I'll take the dirt with me. We'll call it a day. All right. Does that sound good? Notice that Elisha doesn't correct him. He doesn't turn around and beat him down. He doesn't say, hey, I thought you just got saved. You some kind of pagan? <coughs> he didn't say that. He says, for you no longer will your, your, uh, no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. He's a believer. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. Now, again, he hasn't arrived. He's going to bring up one other thing. Because he knows the king back in Syria worships this false pagan god in this area, this kind of, you know, house of worship that way. He goes in there. He says, I'm his right-hand man. I go in with him. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the general. So I go in with him, and he goes, you know, he's going to bow down. He's going to, you know, you've been to churches where you got to stand up, bow down, stand up, bow down. You know, don't, you know the deal. So you turn around, you geniflex, right? You watch the whole thing, and you, you okay, are we up now? We're down? Okay. You know, and, and he recognizes that that's going to happen, right? So he says, I am going to do that because I, I don't want to be disrespectful to the king because I'm his right-hand man. He says, will your God pardon me? Well, I sort of bow like that, although I'm not really bowing to that God because your God's my God, and that's the only God. But I'm doing it because I don't want to be disrespectful to the king of Syria. So he says that in the thing, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, go in peace. Please just pause right there for a second. He doesn't approve it, does he? He doesn't come back and say, this is okay. But he also doesn't what? Disapprove it either. He really doesn't comment. He's kind of silent on this deal. Because the point is, he's sending him away and he's knowing that God will deal with the sanctification issue. He's not his Holy Spirit. Everybody get that for a minute? I'm not your Holy Spirit and you're not mine, right? I say that in love. I'm there to encourage you. You're there to encourage me. We're here to build each other up, right? But in no way do I ever have the right to judge where your walk is with the Lord and somehow appear or think that I'm more holier or somehow I've arrived and, and, and you're behind me or in front of me. No, I don't. What I ought to do is do what I believe Elisha did. Pray. Pray to the Lord. Lord, you speak to his heart. You take that desire from him that when he goes in that place, he can't even stand to be there. He's so uncomfortable. He wants to get out of Dodge. Right? That's the right answer there. You know, I, a lot of you know, I, I was raised Roman Catholic. I, I was raised in the Catholic Church. You know, it's very tied to my family and everything. When, when my wife and I go back upstate a lot of times from New York, sometimes they'll have different events or weddings or baptism, and I'll go back into the Catholic Church, right? And certainly there's fond memories there. I mean, I grew up in that church. I understand there's fond memories and the incense, the whole thing, you know. But when I start to see the statues or I start to see certain things, or do, there comes a point where I just start praying. I, it no longer feels 
you know, I used to love, you ever, I mean, a, a church decorated, I, I love the way the, praise the Lord, by the way, for everybody that did the Christmas decorations around here, it looks beautiful, it just, so beautiful to come into a place that's well loved and, and, and been decorated and makes you feel very comfortable, very warm and and, and I can, I, I'm saying this because sometimes you can go into a particular church with the whole glass stained, and it's beautiful. It really is. It's, a, it's beautiful to behold. It is. I think it is sometimes. But I also have to recognize that it's not right for me to judge everybody that's in that church and to assume that they haven't come to Christ. They may be in that place of sanctification where they haven't, they haven't got that, that point where they said, no, 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 I, I'm reading my Bible, and in this denomination, in this church, they're teaching these things, and I, I need to get out. But eventually, guess what will happen? God will do that. He will eventually move and mature to the point of where you become uncomfortable in that church, no matter how nice the building is, no matter how much you like that stained glass. You can't be there anymore. And if you go out of respect for somebody else, your thoughts are on nothing but praying for the people in there for salvation, that the eyes would be opened, and the same grace that he has shown you, the Lord Jesus Christ, may he show all those who are there that day, never to judge, always, always to be you know, understanding and respectful. That's what I see here. He didn't approve it. He did not approve it, but he certainly wasn't condoning it. But he was leaving that up to the Lord. Then he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. We're going to stop there this evening. Uh, I know we're stopping in sort of the middle of the account, but just for our time purposes, I wanted to spend a little bit more time on that account. Um, because I think it's important to recognize there that, that there is this there's this holier than thou thing happening. Right? We have these extremes in the church, don't we? We have the extremes of where like complete legalism and you're and just judging everybody. Everybody's falling and they fall short and they, you know, they just boy, you walk into a place and it just feels so cold. Because it feels like all the eyes are on you and you can't do anything right. I pray God, it's never like that here. At least never, I've never experienced it or been told like that here. Usually people here, because of all of you, because of you and the Holy Spirit in you, when people walk through these doors, they feel loved. They feel the best love, the best taught because the word of God's going forward. That's because of all of you, because you are answering the call Christ has put on your hearts and didn't just become indifferent but there are times where you can go and you can it can feel cold or, or there's other times where boy it's a it's a party and you come into a place and they're hopping around and you know the whole thing and your boy man they're just but not a single lick of the word of god's being taught or i don't want to say that maybe some of the word of god's being taught but it's real hard you got to be you got to really pay attention because you get a sprinkle of truth and then you get a whole lot of other doctrine. You know? It's hard for people today. 
you and I, we, we have the privilege of having the word of God before us. We get to read this in and out. We, we, maybe some of us have sat here for years and s- sat under the word and watched what it's done in our lives and changed our hearts. Let us never write off anybody else because they're maybe not in that same place. Maybe they have never read their Bible. But that doesn't mean they don't love Jesus Christ. You be the one to be the living epistle that draws them. Like I said earlier at the beginning of our message, my message for you this evening, the word of the Lord. Are you willing to be that woman? Are you willing to go into captivity? Are you willing to give up all your comforts, all your guarantees, all your assurances, all your desires to follow the Lord? Friends, if you can answer yes tonight, you're in a good place. You're in a good place in your heart. If you have any doubt about that answer, seek the Lord. Ask him to remove that dross. Ask him to remove that fear and anxiety. Ask him to remove those things that are holding you back from experiencing the perfection and unlimited love and majesty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because I promise you, when you surrender all, when you let it all go, when you begin to think of just how amazing our God is, you'll never be the same and you'll never want it back. You'll never, ever want to go back. I never want to go back. I know what I've been saved out of. I know who I've been saved from. I don't want to go anywhere else but in the arms of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you stand with me? Musicians, will you come up? Let's take that to heart tonight. If there's sin in your life, repent and turn away. Don't become comfortable in your sin. It's not something you and I get to choose as far as God's desire and design for our lives. If you settled that and you're, you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, how can I get more involved? I, I've mentioned children's ministry to serve. I've mentioned, you know, they're going to, the children, their children's ministry, the parents and the children, they're going to be baking cookies. I think it's this weekend or, or next weekend. They're going to be baking cookies so that they can turn around and wrap them and bring them to our neighbor's all around us, and also some Saturdays. Thank you, dear. Thank you, dear. They're going to be doing it, and we have different ministries and different groups doing that throughout the whole church, singles, college career, all the, you know why they're doing it? They're sitting there going, Pastor, you're going to make me bake for six hours, man. And I'm like, I know it's a lot of work, but you know what it's going to do? You're going to bring that gospel to someone's heart. It's really not about the cookie. It's about the word of God that's attached to that package that's going to change somebody's heart forever. If we're a church that says we believe these things and we actually start living them out and stop living for self, there is nothing that can stop us. It says the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. But we got to live with that dudamos in the Greek, that dynamite, that power. 
instead of living like we're holding on for the last moment. No, we're overcomers. Every one of you is an overcomer. Every one of you is blood bought by Jesus Christ. Every one of you has already been given victory. You need nothing else. You are complete in Christ. And you take that focus and that energy and you use it for the gospel of Jesus, for the kingdom of God. Let it consume every aspect of your life, your finances, your thoughts, your time, everything. And watch what he'll do. Father, Lord, you want to light that fire again in our hearts, Jesus. And Lord, all we want to do is sing about how amazing you are, how good you are, and worship you. But Lord, we're not afraid. Lord, we're not saddened or sorrowful right now. We're rejoicing, Lord, because of the good news of your gospel and your son, Jesus Christ, Father, that saved us. I pray you save those children, Lord, in the children's ministry. I pray in the teen ministry, if there's anybody that doesn't know you, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. I pray everybody that hears these on the, the airwaves, Lord, and the radio and the internet and all those online from home watching. Lord, I pray you do the miraculous. Don't ever let us be put on a shelf, Lord. There's nothing more that frightens me, God, than to be put on a shelf. Please, Jesus, endow us from on high, Lord. We love you, Jesus Christ. Receive our worship now. We pray this in your mighty name, God, and all God's people declare, Amen. Amen.